Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Hello and welcome. My name is Hugh Williams. I'm head of the EMEA news team here at Jane's, and I have the pleasure of uh, introducing today's webinar where we will be exploring the latest developments in the conflict in Ukraine. And to do this, I am joined by Tom Bullock, our senior OSINT analyst, Emil Kutlaski, one of our senior defense analysts, and James Rands, our C4ISR manager. Tom, perhaps we should start with you. Can you give us a bit of an update on the, the kind of lay of the land in, in, in Ukraine at the moment since the, the second phase of the conflict started and, and uh, perhaps some of the forced disposition and, uh, and what's been going on in the Donbass in particular? So Russia's fully completed its drawdown from the north of Ukraine now. They're now focusing mostly on the east and conducting offensives in the Donbass area. They've been moving large numbers of troops into the area and are continuing to do so. Um, they've started conducting what appear to be sort of probing attacks, uh, concentrated around three areas in the Donbass area. So there's a town called Izium, just south of Kharkiv. Slightly to the east of that, there's another area, Sever uh, Severodonetsk. And then in the south, they're pushing up from the Russian front line east of Donetsk and north of Mariupol. Uh, the Russians have also made the decision to not try and capture Mariupol in full. So leaving the Ukrainian forces in the Azovstal steel plant encircled and surrounded. Uh, it seems like a rather wise decision from the Russians. The Azovstal steel plant is essentially a fortress. It's a maze of steel and, mine, uh, and tunnels and... It seems like the Russians would waste a lot of manpower trying to capture that area. So what it seems like they're doing now is pulling forces out that are still able to go fight elsewhere and moving them north to the front line to help with the offensive in the Donbass. Can you just give us an update on, on what's happening elsewhere in, in Ukraine as opposed to just in the Donbass, perhaps uh, around Kherson, for example? Sure. So there's been a lot of fighting between Russian and Ukrainian troops in Kherson. Um, as of today, the 26th of April, the Ukrainians had captured a few villages in western Kherson and are starting to push the Russians back in different areas. There are indicators that the Russians are preparing for an offensive north out of Kherson, possibly to cut off railway lines heading east to west across the country. They've also been, according to the British and Ukrainian ministries of defence, preparing uh, an independence referendum, which is slated to happen in early May. For the Kherson region. The Ukrainian intelligence have been talking about this for several weeks now. Doesn't appear that the Russians have put in the sort of groundwork we saw in the Donbass in 2014-15, so things like pro-Russia protests and the like, but Russian forces do appear to be trying to limit the withdrawal of civilians from the area they occupy, so they're forcing people to stay in the towns where they are. So since the start of the conflict we've seen a gradual uptick in, in the supply of equipment from the West. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the uh, the issues that the Ukrainians might have in, in fielding these systems? Yeah, sure, Hugh. So we've seen a shift from the early days where it seems that sort of Ukraine's allies were more prepared to shift sort of small arms and light weapons uh, in the expectation that perhaps the war wouldn't last very long and therefore not only would, would the sending of heavy equipment be seen as an escalation, but also perhaps the idea that the Ukrainians wouldn't have time to properly train on them before the war would end and therefore it would be perhaps somewhat wasted. With now the Russians being defeated in the north and refocused towards the east, the realisation that this war could last for a lot longer than everyone expected, or at least most people expected, 
sort of Ukraine's allies a bit more prepared now to put in more time into into providing them with more heavier equipment that they you know they will surely need in in in, in the Battle of the East. So we've seen a gradual transition away from light weapons, you know, shoulder, you know ammunition, light weapons, iron tank weapons, and start guided missiles, stuff that can be easily trained on quite quickly and shifted in quite large numbers, to increasing numbers of armoured fighting vehicles from Slovenia and Slovakia now, Poland potentially. Lately, we've had a lot of uh, countries declaring that they would send different artillery systems. So the US and Canada are likely sending M777 towed uh, 155s. France will be providing 12 Caesars, uh, self-propelled guns. The Netherlands between 8 to 12 of their Panzer Halberts as 2000s. We've seen a number of other G30 howitzers from Estonia via Germany. So these are a mixture of, uh, I believe, Gvozdikas um, uh, as well from Poland. So we're seeing a mixture of surplus sort of Soviet-style equipment that Ukraine is familiar with and therefore can put into, into use quite quickly. The retraining burden uh, and the logistics burden uh, is not as heavy and more advanced Western systems that are completely new to Ukraine. So on the one hand, capability will be most welcome, but also it will also put a pressure on Ukrainians in terms of the logistics chain, how they're going to incorporate all these different systems, especially Western artillery systems, which require you know their own training, their own maintenance, spares, et cetera, into their logistics chain. It's not going to be easy. I'm sure they can, they'll can figure it out, but it will pose a challenge in, in a certain sense. But once again, not to say the beggars can't be choosers, but Ukraine needs this capability right now. And the only way they can get it is being provided from abroad so that, you know, they'll have to prove to be quite resourceful. And they have so far in adapting these Western systems into their into their orbit, into their logistics chains to be able to, to employ them effectively. There's still some debate as to whether certain countries will, will provide more heavy equipment. It's certainly true that something we mentioned uh, perhaps before that the open terrain of the, of the eastern part of the country will lend itself more to large scale mechanized warfare, whereas we saw focusing on the battles in the north, it was a lot more urban, a lot more close range terrain and weather conditions will, will make things more mobile in the east. Uh, so certainly artillery will be welcome. We know that the Ukrainians have also managed to capture a large number of, of, of Russian vehicles. The extent to which they've managed to repair these vehicles and put them into use is, is unclear. We know there's evidence that they have certain vehicles. Whether or not they've done it to the scale that we think they have, or we suspect they have in terms of like numbers of vehicles captured, I think it's a lot less because it takes time to get these vehicles repaired. The Russians have been targeting their, their industry as well. Uh, so a lot of this stuff is being done in sort of like small workshops, wherever they can find the space for it. So obviously large, growing this to a large scale will, will be difficult, but certainly they have a logistics bit of a Gordian knot on their hands for sure. But on the flip side is, is this is capability that they, they sorely need. So we'll have to juggle with that. James, uh, perhaps you can address a point that Tom made there regarding the, the strike on the rail infrastructure and perhaps a bit more on uh, what we can expect from the Russians in the coming weeks. Thanks, Hugh. If I may, I'll answer those two um, in reverse order. Um, so what are we expecting the Russians to do? I think we said this in the last podcast that all, pretty much all wars end in one of two ways. Either one side is so thoroughly crushed uh, that it's unable to offer any resistance and the winner can impose their will on them in any way they choose. Or, more frequently, uh, the two sides meet and agree a mutually acceptable, if not desirable, um, settlement. It's pretty clear that the Russians are not in a position where they can actually achieve that total or absolute, as Klasman sort of put it, victory. And so, if this war is going to end on anything other than their defeat, 
what they need to do is gain some sort of significant military advantage, which they can then exploit. By refocusing on the east, it looks like the uh, objective would be to take on uh, the bulk of the Ukrainian professional forces. And remember, that, of course, that the bulk of the Ukrainian professional forces prior to this invasion were um, positioned in the east, and they have been fighting there for eight years. So gaining a victory over them would be um, significant and would allow them to save a significant amount of face after what has been a pretty humiliating set of failures and, and defeats um, at the hands of the weather, at the hands of the Ukrainian forces. Let's not forget that the Ukrainians have fought really hard and very effectively uh, and in the face of their own incompetence on some elements like logistics planning. So what has been suggested is that they would do a sort of double envelopment from the north and the south, so break out around Kherson uh, from the south and, and down from uh, the Izium area and try and encircle as much of the forces in the east as they could. I think realistically they are lacking the, the combat power to do that. If you look at the, uh, the routes they follow, they're going to be quite thin, they're going to be quite exposed on both flanks. Um, and given the casualties that they've taken both in personnel and in vehicles, and given the fact that those forces that are up in the north are not fit for combat, they are defeated forces that need time to refit and really need a, an injection of, of dynamic leadership from someone to get them back on their feet. Actually, what they have in the east is just not enough to do that. So what they'll probably try and do is more of a bite and hold to take some ground. Getting the whole of the net skin enhanced under their um, control is, is credible. And I think that would tie in quite neatly with what's going on in, or what we, we suspect is going on in Kherson. Because if they were to push out of that area and cut the railways, they're cutting the, some of the logistic resupply capability for those forces in the east. If they consider stride that and also road routes, then they are making life very difficult um, for those forces in the east, even if they are not making the position untenable and they're giving them more problems to think about as they actually plan their operations and as they uh, try and resist um, the, the Russian probing attacks. I suspect what we'll have, that said, is the, the probing attacks that, that, that Tom picked out, if any of those start to, to have success, for the reasons I've already said, they'll probably reinforce that as much as they can to try and get some advantage out of what's, uh, what's been happening so far. Well, gents, thanks for thanks for joining me today. Um, some great insight there. I'm sure we'll be back in a couple of weeks uh, as as things progress. Thanks for joining us this week on the world of intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, Janes.com/podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.